And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The race is on, and with the Formula One driver market yet to fire into life in 2023, who should be knocking on the door of a drive for next year, and what would they bring to the grid? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to make the case for the next wave of F1 hopefuls are Jack Benyon, Val Haringey, and Josh Suttill. Well, Jack, we'll say hello to you first, adorned in your the race baseball cap. Quite impressed you're, <laughs> you're dressed for the occasion. We haven't had you on for a while. Obviously, our IndyCar correspondent and listeners to the IndyCar podcast will be very familiar with you. So thanks for taking time out from quite a busy part of the season to uh, talk about future F1 drivers. Yeah, no problem. I think uh, the last time you had any IndyCar kind of uh, content on the pod, you rightfully grabbed J.R. Hildebrand to do that, which would always be the preferable option for you if I was you but unfortunately you stuck with me today yeah he wasn't available for this one so uh, so we went for our, <laughs> our fullback option and Josh Sutil back on the podcast after your run of races uh, towards the the summer break you're always a keen follower of the junior category so this is right in your wheelhouse yeah my secret agenda of following you around uh, Austria and Silverstone and Hungary has been revealed in, in a work capacity I should say rather than in a, a stalker capacity <laughs> Uh, has finally been revealed. Yeah, it was to get us to talk about junior single-seaters, so that agenda has now been achieved. Excellent. A good plan has paid off. And Val, welcome to you. Obviously, I always in- introduce you as our MotoGP uh, podcast person, but we do have you on quite regularly, and you do keep a keen interest on the junior categories. Uh, any any particular bit of this podcast you're excited about? You're quite enthusiastic about the final section we've got planned, where we take uh, listener suggestions for future F1 drivers. Oh, I thought this was about Moto2 and Moto3 riders. Am I in the, <laughs> am I in the wrong Zoom call? Yes, yeah. I mean, always, whenever you're in a Zoom call, you're in the wrong Zoom call. That's what it feels like when, uh, when we're with it. <laughs> Good job. Set you up nicely for that one. But no, no, I am very excited, obviously. Always been very interested in, in junior categories and following the 
various ebbs and flow ebbs and what do they say ebbs and ebbs and turns and flows, I, I, think I forgot english i'm so excited ebbs and flows yeah cool. there you go yeah well it's an interesting topic and there's always interest in the driver market so let's get into it and the premise for the podcast is simple each of my guests is going to choose one driver who has never raced an f1 that they think merits a race seat and make the case for them for 2024 or beyond we'll discuss them i'll maybe try and play devil's advocate a little to ensure they have a watertight case and hopefully give listeners a good understanding of why these drivers should be considered no returnees are allowed so anyone who started a grand prix is not eligible and will happily stray off the beaten path with candidates but they do have to at least be vaguely realistic rather than utter flights of fancy and obviously this is about drivers who could realistically drop into f1 now so not drivers from the past who should have done or anything like that although in our final section of the podcast where we do run through some names who've been thrown at us by some uh, readers of the race listeners watchers there's all sorts of ways to follow the race on on social media are pretty close to uh, to that territory so we're going to go through each guest so val you're first up. Regular listeners know how you keep a close eye on the junior ranks. I'm expecting you to pick someone from the usual F1 ladder, so we'll have a standard format for this to give our listeners an idea of the kind of driver they're dealing with. So can you name your driver of choice and pick out which current or former F1 driver of note they most resemble in their overall style as a starting point? I'm massively alarmed by your use of the word watertight in describing the cases <laughs> that we're going to make because that's you know we're not even going to get close to that in, I think, any of our picks, but... My selection, I don't think for 2024, I think 2024 is, in whatever happens, I think is a is a substantial long shot. But I think 2025 is within the realms of some realism is Alpine Jr. Victor Martins in his first Formula 2 season. And as far as style, I mean, driving style, I'm not going to pretend that I, I, I have some particular insight. I mean, I, I've seen his onboards, but I, I can't say that I've had some sort of great insight from those but i can tell you that in terms of competition style he reminds me a lot of pierre gasly in junior times which is to say that he's super super fast and also just a complete calamity who refuses to win races normally yeah that's a a good comparison obviously having a very good f2 season uh victor martin so what more do we need to know about this driver obviously he is quite an aggressive driver and I think he's probably smoothed out some of that style over time there's still a few traces of that but he's he's certainly exciting isn't he he is exciting but he's also he's as exciting as somebody who has been around for as long as he has been in the junior ranks can be uh Martin's you know he came out a karting prodigy he won the junior world title in a field that also included uh, I believe Tepper Share, Oscar Piastri and a few other of his current uh, well-known contemporaries. And I think he was probably the best carter out of all of those, considered really, really hot property. Uh, made his way into uh, what was then two-liter Formula Renault, which is now a series that merged with Formula Regional. It was a very strong series at the time. Uh, in sort of a less-than-ideal development, he spent three seasons in that. You know, they were all front-running good seasons, but he's he narrowly missed out on the title to Piastri in his second season. And Piastri from there just went, you know, astronomical. So he, you know, he then got two more titles under his belt and is now basically a Formula One star. Whereas Martin stuck around for another season, did win the, the Renault title, went into Formula Three for two seasons, uh, won the Formula Three title eventually in extremely weird circumstances in a Monza finale where I think there were like seven drivers 
going into the round with mathematical chances of winning. And at the end, it went down to uh, Martins on the pit wall with a penalty hanging over him, which will be a recurring theme because that just keeps happening. Uh, looking at the timing screens and waiting to see how they place the field and whether he is champion or whether Red Bull Jr., Zane Maloney, or I think Ferrari Jr., Oliver Behrman have taken it off of him. And in the end, it turned out that they didn't. Uh, and that obviously that secured him or helped secure him the spot on the Formula 2 grid this year. He's currently, I believe, fifth in the standings. Uh, he, sh he should be much higher. Uh, that's, you know, he's had a really, both a really good and an absolutely insane rookie season in that he's thrown out bucket loads worth of points, which is, it's normal for a rookie, but maybe not so normal in the, the sheer amount that's been going out the window. Uh, he's, he's routinely qualifying super well to the, to the point where I went and I, I decided to do sort of like a mock championship in terms of who, yeah, I took all the qualifying results from F2 this season. I just scored the top 10 by the F1 point system. And if you if you make that a championship, uh, Martins leads on 136 and it's Porsche at 117, Behrman at 86. So Porsche, Theo Porsche is Martins, Victor Martins' ART teammate. So it shows ART is really good over one lap. But for Martins, I think specifically, his one lap prowess has been something that has been quite noticed at, at at some stages of his career in, in race pace, which makes sense again for an F2 rookie. He has not been asked together this season, but also he's still been plenty quick enough to where he should, he should really be absolutely in the thick of the, in the thick of the title battle, if not for the, the infinite calamities. And uh, a big source of those is that he doesn't start very well, which feels to me like something that should be fixable in formula one. Right. I mean, He's, I can't imagine he's just got naturally bad reaction times. He's a top-level Formula 2 driver. So I don't think that's something that will translate if he does graduate. So I don't think that'll be like huge concern or unfixable. But in F2, that's been it's really been hurting him. And as far as the various things go, see, he's had just a bunch of weird penalties to the point where every time a penalty notification flashes up in an F2 race, you sort of assume it's probably Victor Martins having done something with track limits or yellow flags or something like that. He obviously had that moment which went viral, like the one thing that goes viral the entire F2 season where he was approaching Massonet with double flags and double, double, double yellow flags. In that case, double yellow flags meant there's a car parked on the inside and being attended to to the marshals and he went around the blind corner and there's the car and there are the marshals and he just narrowly avoided them and he was a little bit too fast. So it was it was sort of a joint problem by race control and by the driver, and he got a penalty for that. Just one of the many penalties that he got. Had uh, crashes by himself, had crashes with other drivers. Had Usually those crashes come when he's running like top three or top two crashes or spins. Again, there's just so many points left on the table. Even the one race that he won so far, Silverstone, which he won in very impressive fashion. He was clearly the quickest driver there. He had to overcome a post-safety car five-second penalty. So that was another race that he was well set up to just lose out of nowhere because he had a, a penalty for an earlier track limits infringement in battle on the opening lap that just took a while to be applied. But he was he was leading after, under safety car. There were like 10 or 12 laps to go. And there's a five-second penalty. And at that point, you think he's done. Like he's not going to win. And even if he does pull out, there's going to be another safety car that will negate whatever lead he's created again. But somehow it went green to the end and he did manage to build up a, a seven-second lead over 
Maloney to, to build up the five, the five second gap. So from my, why I'm excited about Victor Martins is he's really fast. And all of those other things, like you can never totally take out that X factor of like stuff just seems to happen around you over a normal race distance. Like you don't entirely have have it together and things just happen to you. And that kind of, maybe that sticks around into Formula One, but it's it feels to me like something that's easier to manage and in time deal with than a, a lack of pace. And just in terms of sheer pace, I think Victor Martins in his first season of Formula 2 is the quickest driver in the Formula 2 grid. So that's that's my pick. Uh, I think we've already seen Alpine be willing to take its quick-looking junior and try to, you know, obviously they have a long-term-looking lineup in their main team, but they've been willing to have a look at placing somebody at Williams, that somebody being Oscar Piastri, before Oscar Piastri decided actually might have other ideas. Martins, like if if you want a 2024 uh, idea, which is not going to happen, but which would make some sense to me, if they decide Logan Sargent is a no-go, asking Alpine if Alpine would like to subsidize uh, a seat for the raw but very fast Victor Martins would not be the worst idea for me if I was Williams. I don't think any of the actual other contenders that they maybe have, apart from maybe a certain one that will will come to a bit a bit shorter, are much meaningfully better and certainly I'm not sure any of them have a particularly higher ceiling. I have to say you chose Pierre Gasly as the the driver you compare him to. I think you could make a case for him being a bit Pastor Maldonado-esque. Now I don't say that quite as much as a pejorative <laughs> as some do because Maldonado was stunningly fast but he was incident prone, a little bit unrefined. I think Maldonado had a huge amount of ability so you know you want a Grand Prix so I'm not saying that to to do Martin Martin down but I think there's a little bit he, he's a, perhaps a slightly uh slightly detuned version in terms of uh, not quite as extreme but there, there's a few uh, a, a few factors uh, there that that mean he leaps to mind I mean I've thought about it but also which is uh, Maldonado he was a very fast GP2 driver but he, he wasn't a very fast GP2 driver like instantly I don't think, whereas Martins is this good in his rookie year in a series that's that can be very complicated for rookies because of the Pirelli tires and the lack of you know practice running and all that. Uh, so yeah, I, I did also make a comparison, but I think he's already sort of a more refined version <laughs> compared to what Maldonado maybe was at that stage of his career. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and it, it's it's not like he doesn't strike me as a reckless driver. Victor Martins, he just strikes me as one who just doesn't have it entirely together. Like, apart from the Marshall thing at Monaco, which obviously when you say Marshall at Monaco, you also immediately think Pastor Maldonado. For the listeners who don't know, he had an accident with a Marshall back in Formula Renault 3.5 in year I don't remember, but it was, it was fairly significant. But Martins is not reckless. He's not, like, obviously like bad or calamitous in wheel to wheel and he does make errors but not to the point where you'd say it's a pattern of just bad driving you just over one lap maybe the concentration is there over one lap and over the race he just needs to to work on it maybe it's just maybe again it's just the factor of being a rookie in f2 that's quite difficult but i just that's why it reminds me of gasly because gasly was also a bit like that starting out in gp2 and was like that finding out fresh ways to 
lose races basically until it clicked and he went on a run that secured him the the gpt title i spoke to him in in budapest to try and find out exactly why that was a problem and in his theory was that in formula renault and formula 3 you can push 100 of the time and you can just attack 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 in formula 2 you can't do that and he's had trouble kind of dialing it back down to kind of 95%, which is a very common problem for, for most people coming up to Formula 2. And it's one he seems to be struggling with. But it is one that I think he has made progress on in this rookie year. And it is one that is uh, something that, that can be overcome and, and has been overcome by other drivers. Gasly maybe had a, a similar kind of problem, especially when he was coming from Formula Renault, which is a, a very different style from, from GP2. So there's definitely a factor of that. Formula 2 is just incredibly hard, isn't it, to to jump straight into and get it. Some drivers are able to do it, like Piastri, pretty much from the off. But some drivers do need that little bit more time. So, yeah, I, th- I think he's making strides with that. And and speaking of Piastri as well, I think it's a good pick because you look back at that 2019 season and there's only, what, seven and a half points between them. If that's, you know, you can easily find that in, in a season. And, and if that swaps around, the whole career, tra- career trajectory is, is, is completely different. And he kind of went his own way after that. I mean, he, he had sort of a year as a half Renault junior um, and kind of wanted to stay in Formula Renault and, and do a third year and win it as he did and kind of do his own thing and then obviously came back fully with, with Alpine in, in 2021. Um, and he doesn't really seem too afraid um, to go the long way around. You know, when I was speaking to him, he used Nick DeFries as an example of somebody who who didn't get to F1 immediately and obviously caught there in the end. Not the best example of what happened once you got to F1, but in terms of, I think he's, He's very much got the mentality of having patience. He's not afraid to go to to Formula E or do another year in Formula Two or look elsewhere or hypercar, IndyCar. He, he, yeah, he's very open to that. I think he's he seems to have a, a very level head. He's, he's not expecting to to get to F one next year, but he knows there's the, there's the time there and the, and the progression there. Well, yeah, the, the reason is uh, again, he is the exact comparison because of the three years in in Formula Renault, three years to win Formula Renault. But De Vries had seven pole positions i think in that time in formula and he was a good formula renault driver like don't get me wrong he was actually you could still see glimpses of that carding superstar nick devries in formula renault but he had seven poles i think in that time or something like that victor martins had 21 uh, he was he was he was a really good formula renault driver and the, the you know that comparison with piastri that season I think only in retrospective only looks better because of what we now know Oscar Piastri to be. Because at that time, maybe Piastri was still relatively a bit unknown, a bit unproven. In his first Formula Renault season, he was eighth and Victor, I think, was fifth. So you sort of like, why are you being beaten by a guy who was three places behind you the year before? But the answer might well be because that guy is actually shockingly good, as we've now found out. Um Martins in that so that first his first season in Formula Renault he was beaten by two pretty good teammates in I think it was the more experienced Max Futrell who was in Renault Junior at that point and it was Christian Lungard who is now IndyCar's best kept secret if you like absolutely excellent uh, overseas right now and since then I don't think Martins has been beaten by any junior single seater teammate over a full season he's had He's had some good teams, but also some sort of, I wouldn't call them fixer-upper teams, but teams that weren't like the absolute top. And I know that my my former colleagues at the website that both myself and Josh used to used to write for uh, Formula Scout rated his weird F3 title actually really, really highly because they they believed there was a, a disadvantage 
maybe not in terms of ART machinery, but in terms of the, the testing that he was afforded, because Victor Martins is not the most budget-heavy driver in, in junior single-seaters, far from it. He will need to lean on a Formula One team's discretion to get there on, on a team like Alpine to, to finance him. But the thing, I think this season he is showing why somebody should. Genuinely, I, I mean, he needs more. He needs to show more. This is not a watertight case. He needs to show more. He needs to show more composure, more than most. I think many Formula One teams just are not that interested right now to be ironing out things in the process because nobody is in, in that position. Williams is not in that position. Williams is no longer uh, three seconds off the back. Williams needs results now. So, but at the same time, like the, I think the, the higher reaches of pace, they're worth, they're worth looking at. They're worth being really excited about. You've been very silent through this, Jack, but I've, I've got to ask, if he doesn't get picked up by F1, he does sound like the sort of driver that could thrive in IndyCar, doesn't he? Sounds like the absolute perfect prototypical, basically steel driver from Europe and put him in an IndyCar type situation. Um, Val mentioned Grissia Lungard, who's been the kind of, opposite of that in a certain way um a much more kind of consistent driver who's less likely to make those mistakes and his racecraft's been praised constantly in in indycar the the other drivers are a big fan of racing against him and really enjoy kind of racing around him and really rate him very highly whereas i i guess there's there's other drivers who've come across who've been a lot more peaky in a kind of a more martin style um that that kind of also make them suited to indycar I, i guess the the style in IndyCar is that you need to rag the car around and you need to be the driver who's able to take the car basically beyond its its realms of pace. And it's one of the reasons why drivers coming from, I guess, European base series who are so used to managing a Pirelli over a stint or, or keeping a Pirelli in a certain temperature window and, and not overdriving the car sometimes struggle coming to, to IndyCar because it's such a different driving style and it's almost unlearning. You just have to forget everything you've learned on those kind of junior single-seater ladders in, in Europe and basically drive it more like a rally car than, than anything that you drive in in Europe. So uh, I, I guess that can be a, a challenge for some drivers, but it definitely doesn't strike me as the kind of challenge that Victor Martin would have. Excellent. So if F1 doesn't work for him, IndyCar's also a possibility, a driver with a bright future. Just to finish off very quickly, Val, we're going to have a standardised finishing question, which is what's the X factor that this driver brings that says he could be something special in F1? Uh I mean, qualifying pace, right? This season, he's the best qualifier in, in Formula 2 this season. He's generally got a pretty good qualifying record over his career. Somehow, he didn't get any pole positions in his two F3 seasons, but he was pretty much always there or thereabouts. Just happens sometimes, I guess. I think this season, clearly that ability over one lap has shown through because he is the best qualifier in F- F2 right now in his first season. Excellent. Well, let's see how he progresses over the coming half season or probably 18 months I think as far as he's concerned the plan is more F1 in 25 than 24 as you alluded to Val but yeah a very interesting driver he's progressed well so I'm quite excited to see how he gets on looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 US-based live customer service from Discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner StubHub 
has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Well, let's move on to you now, Jack. Given you're our IndyCar correspondent, I suspect I know where you might be going with your choice. So who is it? And as the format demands, which F1 driver past or present do they most resemble and why? Yeah, my, my pick is not Stingray Rob, which was a stick uh, a pick that was made by some of the uh, the sort of listener answers that you've had uh, come in is obviously Alex Pillow. I guess the driver who I kind of, that immediately kind of comes to mind is Alan Prost, just because of a... I guess this is more like a kind of post F1 career interpretation, but there's always that thing with Alan Prost where, you know, he's obviously called the professor, that's his nickname. And um, I I guess people tend to think that Ayrton Senna was the one with the raw pace and that Alan Prost was the one who was kind of more consistent and did the job over the course of a season and kind of found his pace more through maybe like analysis and and learning as opposed to Ayrton Senna's kind of innate ability to just pull pace from from anywhere. Um, I guess that's kind of maybe not how people who covered F1 at the time would maybe have interpreted Alan Prost post-career, but it is kind of the reputation that Prost has now. And I guess that it feels quite like that with Pelot based on he won his 2021 championship with um, not as many signs of, of the raw pace of some of the other drivers in the series. That was a big question mark over the course of the year was whether he whether he was able to draw some of the, the, that, that kind of ultimate pace that we saw from some of the other drivers in the series. But he won the championship through being consistent, through really strong mentality. Um, he is basically unbeatable mentally in that season. Um, you know, every time something went against him, he was able to bounce back almost immediately and and, and produce again the next weekend. And uh, that's definitely a, a kind of uh, something that I think he shares with, with Alan Prost a little bit is that kind of mental aspect and, and also his consistency over a season. So um, yeah, maybe it wouldn't be as, as accurate a nickname in Alan Prost's career, but I think it's kind of post-career, it kind of works quite nicely. I guess the... The other kind of elements to it are that Polo sort of drives the car very straight. And when I say that, I, I guess that kind of alludes back to what we were just talking about, about the IndyCar needing to be, or, or it is driven quite sideways. If you watch some IndyCar on board, you'll see a lot of a lot of oversteer at various points through the through the corner. Not n- not normally entry to mid, but entry and exit, you kind of get a fair bit of, of oversteer and there's quite a lot of correction going on from the drivers. But when you watch Polo's on board in comparison to other drivers, the steering wheel appears a lot more straight. He seems a lot more kind of, it looks a lot more under control. And I, and I don't say that to say that the people who look more wild are out of control, but Polo certainly seems to be more serene in the cockpit. Everything seems to be, everything seems to be more under control, straight, sensible, um, not slipping the tire as much as possible, keeping, keeping everything as simple as, as possible. And that's definitely his style. And that is not a style that usually works so well in IndyCar, but he's found a way to make it work. Um, whether it be in qualifying and races, he seems to have um, really made that style work for him. Um, I guess the other reasons to kind of think about him are he has relevant F1 experience with his recent test programme with McLaren. He was three tenths off Lando on the same tyre in his FP1 debut at Cota. Um, I think he's shown basically almost all of the attributes you would need for an F1 driver. And he's also just, I guess, one of the reasons why we're talking about him now. He's having the most fantastic season in in IndyCar, in, in one of the championships that I guess is regarded as one of the most competitive and also one of the most unpredictable championships outside of Formula One. He's done 13 races this year and his average finish is 3.46. So 
you know, I think that basically speaks for himself. He's also, his, his qualifying's also been very good the whole time he's been in Dakar, although he's kind of maybe lacked poles in the past, but he's had two this season. Um, his average starts 5.38 this year. He's got the most points on road courses and he's got the most points on street courses. So if you're looking at IndyCar and thinking, you know, the ovals kind of um, are not relevant to F1 and they, they kind of distort things a little bit, you don't need to worry about that because he's the highest point scorer on road and street courses. He's also the second highest point scorer on ovals. And the guy who's first has won the last five oval races, uh, Joseph Newgarden. So no mean feat to be second in terms of points scored there. He's got an 84-point championship lead with four races to go. Um, he's got four wins and his worst finish this season's eighth. So whether you're talking about him as a person or you're talking about the season he's having, I think all of it packages to a very kind of uh, F1 friendly uh, option to to look at. Whether he ends up there next year, I think at the moment looks pretty unlikely, although we know there's interest from from Williams and Alpha Tauri. It's still an outside option, I guess, but at the moment it's looking like more like he's going to be in, in IndyCar next year. But uh, he's definitely a strong option and I can understand why teams would want to look at him. I think the only thing is that probably goes against him is his kind of weird uh, career leading up to IndyCar and some of the results and some of the finishes he had in other championships that he'd done, particularly in Europe, where most of the F1 kind of team bosses and, and people who make the decisions there will have been aware of him. Um, obviously, some pretty difficult seasons he had over in the European-based championships, whether it was F2 or or GP3 at the time with, with Campos. So uh, what he's done since then, I think, has been super impressive. Had a really good year in Super Formula where he was scoring ball positions and, and fought for the championship there. Obviously came over and had a really low-key, brilliant maiden season in IndyCar with Dale Coyne, which probably went a little bit under the radar for people in Europe who maybe don't quite understand Dale Coyne as a team or know much about them to a team that has a history of developing good drivers, but uh, is is a very small team in terms of its resource and what it has to offer. It, it's also one of those teams where, and we're seeing this this season, not to get too much into Dale Coyne season, but the they go through a cycle where their their people are so good that they constantly get picked up by the bigger teams and then you quite often get like a a, a a big hole in the team where they've lost all of their engineers and all of their drivers because the big teams have taken them. So we're definitely seeing that this season with their kind of uh, background. But Polo had a great season there and as obviously uh, he won his first season with Ganassi in, in 2021. Had a difficult season last year while all of his uh, kind of weird, I'm going to McLaren, but then... Uh, lawsuits kicking off and, and not being able to make that move for, for this season but he's taken the I guess is what you can only call his plan B which was to uh, stay at stay at Ganassi and he's turned that into a, a winning situation so I think all around just a, a really rounded option um, and probably as close to watertight as you're going to get for a driver who's not in Formula 1 to, to you know to make a case for yeah, it feels like it's almost now or never for him as well because he's 26. So I suspect F1 might pass him by, but if it doesn't, he's going to be an IndyCar ace for for years to come. So that's not a bad position to be in. But that point you made about Europe is interesting, and Val or Josh might have something to say on this. Obviously, sometimes there's there's kind of a, a feeling that, well, drivers are better suited to IndyCar or racing in the US than they are in, in Europe. Do you think there's anything to that, or do you think you can as Jack alluded to, pretty much explained his European career by some of the teams he was driving for. Exactly. You look at his first GP3 year and he finishes 202 points away from champion Esteban Ocon. And that just doesn't tell the full story at all of, of that year. He had some brilliant qualifying performances. I think he was in the 
the the top five and five of the nine rounds in, in qualifying. So he was able to to get the one lap out and he just had some horrendous bad luck. He made some mistakes. I think he had some awful race starts, mechanical failures, all kind of things were, were just going on and, and that really obscured that year. When he looked at when he were following that season, it really looked like he was one of the kind of top talents, but just not in one of the top teams. So I, I think it it was evident from there that he was going to be something special and, and that wasn't realized for quite a while. But I think to, to people who kind of followed that GP3 season, it, it was no surprise to see him having success later on in, in Super Formula IndyCar. I think there's it's it's difficult for the Formula One teams and the team bosses and stuff to to really get into the intricacies of this because if you think about how many drivers they have to think about every year doing this kind of thing, like I it's not a criticism of Formula One team bosses, but they're just not capable of going into that level of detail to work out why drivers you know being like that. And it's it's it, I I totally understand it. It's really tough. It's definitely not a criticism of Formula One team bosses. It does get quite frustrating if like. Like us three, you work in junior single-seater paddocks for multiple years and then you go on to work in other championships outside of Formula 1 and you you see the level of quality that's there and what these drivers are capable of doing when they're given the right opportunity to actually to actually do that. But if they're not given that opportunity or they don't get it perfectly right, then they're totally written off and you know uh, kind of cast aside. So uh, I guess that's a, an interesting element to all of this is that the, there's so many drivers out there for the team bosses to to try and analyse and obviously it's, it's easy for us to sit here over an hour and break down three drivers in excruciating detail and tell people why they should be Formula 1 drivers but for, I guess Formula 1 team bosses have got a lot on and they can't necessarily always get into that level of detail so it's kind of an interesting aspect of you know I guess there's sometimes a bit of negativity or like oh, why is this guy not been given a chance or why is this guy not been able to get to formula one or it's not it's not fair but i kind of see the other side of it where it's really difficult to sometimes break down some of these situations uh, for the team bosses i think honestly i think it was just it was yeah it was that it was a, a lack of big budget opportunities because a big budget is is not something alex below had or as far as i understand not anywhere no, close no, to right. that yeah so it's just i think with a different a different career trajectory where he gets big money backing is entirely plausible and it's entirely plausible i think that he ends up in formula one or at least close to it on that trajectory and it would have taken just a, a formula one team taking a punt and in hindsight it, it feels weird that they didn't but i think maybe i'm operating under the current system of where like almost every big team has like five or six juniors across F2 and F3 categories. And back when Palou was coming up, that was not really the case, was it? And, I mean, everybody was too busy noticing Max Verstappen anyway. But Palou was a, a, a very good karting driver coming out. I remember a lot of buzz about him. And I think if, if it was more like the current climate, I think a Ferrari or an Alpine would give him a season in top machinery somewhere. That's what I would have expected that. And then the entire career goes different because from everything we've seen since, I mean, Super Formula is great. IndyCar has been phenomenal. And I think from everything we've heard of his F1 outings, they've been really solid. And I think, Ed, you followed the, was it you or was it Scott? It was one of you two. You two are the same person, <laughs> Formula One, nebulously. Uh, but his, his practice outing in replacement of Daniel Ricciardo was it at Circuit of the Americas yeah I vaguely remember that as being really really good so I mean sooner or later I mean the cream doesn't always rise to the top but here that path or this path I mean it happened and I think it was always going to happen and with a bit more budget it could have happened to F1 instead of to where he has gone 
Yeah, I thought there might be a bit more buzz about his FP1 debut because he was only he's just over three tenths off Lando on the same tyre, and I think it probably worked in his against him that Lando changed tyres and then went a lot faster. So the actual yeah. deficit at the end of the session was quite a bit bigger. But when you actually compared on the same tyre, it was it was pretty close. I, I was quite surprised that there wasn't more kind of buzz about that. Even now, when people talk about him going to F1, that there's so little mention of of that FP1. But I guess just one more thing I wanted to add while we were talking there was just I, I really like Alex Plo's attitude because. When he left GP3, at that point, he decided that he was going to do anything he could to become a professional driver. He'd already identified at that point that Formula One wasn't an option for him because, like Val said, he didn't have the budget and that he hadn't had the results. And instead of stomping his feet or, um, I guess, beg, borrow and stealing to, to stay in GP3 or, or move up to to, to GP2 or, or F2 at that point, um, he, he in his mind, he'd made his mind up that it wasn't going to happen for him. He just hadn't had the results and he didn't have the money and that he was going to do whatever he could to establish himself as a professional driver. And IndyCar was his favourite option at that point to, to try and do that. But obviously he went through, um, he went through Japan, um, obviously went through a few different championships there, including lots of different, uh, I guess, Formula 3 and, and all sorts. And uh, I guess I just really like the the realism. There's so many drivers we see in that position who just continue to like toil away at the the junior categories there. Um even though I guess for people like us, it's easy to look at it and just say that that person's going to be a GT driver or that person's going to be, you know, that person is not going to make it to to Formula One. Um, a lot of these drivers still kind of what we would describe as wasting the money and continue to to continue to toil away. But uh, I feel I feel like Polo's attitude, it's just kind of one of the things that underpins his ability is just he's very realistic. He, he knows what he's capable of and he, he believes in himself, but also won't overreach. Um, and I think if he's, if he actively wants to go to Formula One and thinks that he can get there, then I I believe that he thinks he has the ability to do it and that he will make it a success based on his, well, a lot of different things, but partly based on his determination. Honestly, like just going a bit early, I'm a little surprised, Jack, that when a, a, a driver comparison was asked, Alain Prost is good. Honestly, I expected you to say Scott Dixon. Okay. Because I, I know Ganassi is a common link, but I think... There's a bit of Dixon and Pelot, not just because of that, but because there are things that happen in IndyCar races that you look away, you look back, and you see he's made up enormous amounts of time <laughs> in a in hard to understand laps. How how exactly it happened? There have been a lot of Pelot races, not just this season, but you know the last season that was colored by the uh, McLaren Ganassi lawsuit type of thing. I mean, his final win in Laguna Seca to close out the season was what thirty seconds. Yeah. F1 drivers win races by 30 seconds. IndyCar drivers do not win races by 30 seconds. Nope. It has not happened in like 15 years or something. Um, there's So I, I think he is very obviously methodical and very smart about it. But I also think there is, and I think FP1, that FP1 outing proves it just generally, there is that extra bit of pace that he can access when he needs to, that, you know, that he can put it on the line and risk it. Or just sometimes he's that in the window that, he resembles more a Senna than a Prost, I guess. Not that Prost has never been in the window and never dominated F1 races, obviously. Uh, it, uh, I, there's, it's hard to want him in F1 because he's such a joy in IndyCar. That's, 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 he's just, he's so enjoyable to watch. I mean, there's just not, IndyCar's a very good series, but he's something special there. And it would, it would really sting if he traded that, even for a pretty good F1 career. <laughs> I didn't think Dixon because my immediate my immediate thought process was that they have basically opposite driving styles. So right, it, just in terms right. of like trying to compare someone like from a 
who are they like perspective. It didn't seem relevant in that sense, but you, you're 100% right that he does seem to pop up in races when you don't expect him to or be able to turn really low, like, running positions into, like, podiums and stuff. And, like, at least two or three times in the last six weeks, uh, Joseph Newgard has been on the podium and been like, how did you get here? Like, I was, like, miles ahead of you uh, earlier in the race. Uh, he just seems to be able to do that. But I think that's another thing to point out about IndyCar that's quite interesting, that there's this element of strategy in IndyCar. Obviously, there's a lot of caution. Well, not a lot of cautions, but more kind of cautions are more impactful than like a safety car would be in Formula 1 necessarily. There's a lot of mixed pit strategy going on. Obviously, there's refueling and all of that kind of good stuff, um, which makes the races a, a lot different in, in IndyCar. But I, th- I think there's this misunderstanding that because someone's been on an alternate strategy, they've they've like looked into being on being in a podium or being in a top five or, or winning a race. And it's, it's so important in current IndyCar that you're able to match the strategy you're on with the pace because there's going to be four or five people who are really fast on your strategy. And if you make even the slightest mistake or you don't deliver the pace when you're put into that position to be able to win the race, then you're absolutely not going to be able to do it. You're, you're going to be overtaken. So it seems like a really obvious thing to say that you need to be fast. But I think there's this maybe people sometimes think that just the strategy is enough to just win you a race just by being on a a weird alternate strategy in some of these races and it's it's really not like you have to match that with the pace and we've seen that so many times from Alex Pillow this season like people calling him lucky because he's gone from these lowly positions to the podium but it's it's a combination of brilliant strategy from from his team Barry Wanza is his strategist who, who does a really good job but also Pillow delivering the pace when those opportunities present themselves is the reason why he is where he is Nothing lucky about Pillow dragging a broken, hilariously broken front wing for 30 laps to, what was it, second, third place? It was second place, wasn't it? Toronto. Nothing yeah. lucky about that. It was an extremely unlucky situation in which Ganassi then made, and Pillow then made the insane decision not to try to points race, but to try to bring that wing home, knowing that it can break under the car and send it into the barriers any second, and somehow got away with it. I don't think that's luck. I think that's just stubborn refusal to to give up which does pay off sometimes in in high percentage situations it qualified 15th in that race as well so to turn that into a second is a perfect example of what some of the things he has to do to to pull out these results and just to round off the below section jack what's his x factor i know you've covered it but if you had to zero in on one thing that he could bring to f1 it's there's so many things that are great about him. It's quite difficult to pick one, but I think the the thing I would probably go for the most is his ability to be analytical in a kind of conservative way. And I guess what I mean by that is he's he's so focused on improving the performance of the car that he spends so much time on it away from the track trying to improve things. But he's not one of these people who will like improve the car for turn nine and then ruin it for the rest of the lap, right? He's got this brilliant kind of holistic understanding of a what makes a good IndyCar lap and where you can and can't improve. One of the people who um, kind of talks really well about this is is Jim Hamilton, who I, I guess to describe him really simply for people who don't know him, he works for Ganassi and he's like a special projects kind of group leader. So whenever Ganassi is struggling with something, they set Jim Hamilton on it basically and he goes and crunches the math, does the physics, all of that kind of good stuff. Uh, but he worked on the Apollo space program. He's like, um, he's fact-checked some software for like spy satellites in in the US. Um, He's designed uh, a stealth hull for a battleship. Um, He's done all of these kind of amazing things. And you can read a feature about him on the race if you're interested. It's called From Spy and Space Engineer to IndyCar, Ganassi's Secret Weapon. So you can go and search that out. Uh, But he's one of the people who is just kind of like blown away by Pillow. And not in a sense of like, 
in the same sense that Jim Hamilton is obviously a very intelligent man with all of this knowledge about different um, about physics and math and stuff. Um, but but the way that Polo analyzes things and doesn't basically analyze too much, he he just does the right amount to to help basically improve the team. And I think it's another thing that's really important to mention is that people look at IndyCar and call it a spec series. And it's really not like it's a spec chassis series. That's that's fair to say. But there's a lot of development that goes on behind the scenes, and the some of the damper development that's going on in IndyCar is is absolutely staggering. Um, to to be quite honest with you, in terms of the the rate that the teams are at, in terms of their development, how much they can do, how much they're changing race to race, and from obviously street circuits to to ovals as well. So while there's while while it is a spec chassis series, there's a lot of development going on. Uh, which is another thing that would make, uh, I, I guess, um, make Polo kind of suited to F1 is that he's obviously not got experience of working with 600 people working on all aspects of the car, but he does have a, an experience of some of this development work that goes on uh, behind the scenes. And he's proven that he has the kind of ability to to analyse it well and to to go through all those things really systematically to to improve the car. So I guess that's another kind of uh, another pro in the, the F1 column, if you like, but... Yeah, I guess his determination and his analytical ability would be his like X factors. Well, you've made a very strong case for him there. It'd be interesting to see him in F1. I think I'd agree, though, that I'd like to see him in F1 only with a proper good opportunity. Otherwise, I'd almost prefer he stays in IndyCar and continues to be astonishingly good there. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Well, we'll move on to Josh's choice now. I see Josh as the wild card here because he's capable either of going down the orthodox channels or perhaps picking someone a bit left field. So who are you backing? Well, I considered a good 20 or 25 drivers for this, but I've kind of gone for one of the safest options, and that's current Formula 2 championship leader, Teo Porcher. Obviously, he's in his... Oh, wild card Josh over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I just had to look at look Wikipedia in two minutes and decided. Uh, no, he's, he's in his uh, third, year of, third year of Formula 2, which is often used as a bit of a stick to to beat potential you know, F1 candidates with. They kind of say, you know, you've been hanging around in Formula 2 for too long. But I don't think that argument applies to Porsche because he only had, you know, one year in French F4, then one year in, in the German F4. 
had a brilliant championship winning year there against Dennis Hauger and Arthur the Clerk and a really strong title fight there where I think he showed people just how good he was. He was already backed by Sauber at that point, so they'd noticed his talent very early on as already had some impressive casting achievements before then as well, which he delivered in, in car racing and then obviously stepped up to Formula 3. And just how I was talking about, you know, Martin nearly winning that title against Piastri, well, Porsche could have easily won that Formula 3 title as well, I think, finishing in second. He was uh, three points away from the, the title in the end and, and was just incredibly close to, to beating both Piastri and Sargent, who obviously went on to have... Well, certainly in Piastri's case, a very successful rookie year uh, in Formula 1. So he compared very well there. Stepped up to Formula 2, had a really impressive rookie year. Obviously, Piastri had a a very impressive rookie title winning year there. So he sort of rightly took most of the plaudits. But but Borcher had a really solid rookie year. He didn't push on in the way many expected and hoped he would last year in Formula 2 in his second year. Had a bit of a disappointing year, but there were a number of kind of mitigating circumstances. Not where it was where he was robbed of the title. Djokovic, I think, was clearly the the worthy champion there. But he was extremely, extremely solid, and he sort of carried that through to this year. There's been a couple of kind of glaring errors where you thought, you know, this shouldn't be happening in the third year. But otherwise, there has been some some really good kind of championship contending consistency that was seen from Porsche. You know, he's obviously behind Victor Martin in terms of qualifying. But yeah, he still has been in, I think, the top five in, in pretty much all of the, the qualifyings this year. He's been really consistent in qualifying. His pole position record is actually, you know, pretty bad when you look across his his, his Formula 3 and, and Formula 2. But his qualifying average is, is always very, very high. And in terms of his race management as well, I think he's got more podiums than anybody else. He seems to be really putting together a really nice championship like I say, it's far from perfect, but then again, in, in modern Formula 2, it it seems kind of hard to do that now more than ever. So I think he's he's put together a really good year. He's still only 19, so like I say, he, he's no, you know, Nicholas Latifi, he's no Julian Palmer in terms of spending ages in, in, the, in the second tier and eventually kind of rising to the top. Um in terms of, of who I'd compare him to, actually really struggled. So anybody else's suggestions are welcome. I kind of thought of um, different people who have kind of made big leaps up and, and that people tend to make kind of big leaps up to F1 rather than he's kind of made his, his big, leap, big leap up to, to F2 and F3. I guess you could look at kind of Sonoda as a possible example, the way that Sonoda had an impressive F2 rookie year. What would have happened if Sonoda would have stuck around in F2 for a bit longer? Perhaps similar. You could look at... Um, people like Esteban Ocon maybe the way that his um, championship winning year in the third tier was kind of based more on podiums than kind of um, you know win after win after win you could look at someone like Roman Grosjean looking at further back so there's all sorts of people you could look at but he's very much a bit of a trendsetter at least in Formula 2 now someone like Oli Behrman has basically done the same thing so um, it's uh, yeah it's a hard one to compare but for me, the fact that he's 19, the fact that he's leading the F2 Championship, has clearly made progress over these three years, has become way more consistent, even if there are those errors there. I think he's looking like a, a good prospect. And unlike both of my colleagues, he's a, a great prospect for, for next year as well. <laughs> and, there's, and there's a viable, a very, very viable route to him, uh, route for him, uh, depending obviously on the, the situation at Alpha. Polo will be viable, he just might be a bit more expensive. <laughs> but I think I... I wanted to take us a tiny bit off topic just for a second, just because it's something I've got active experience of, I guess, is like kind of going from F2 and 
an F3 to um, going over to America and, and covering series there. And just it, it just amazes me how much more forgiving American junior single seaters is. And I think that I totally understand that the standard is not quite as high as, as something like F3 and, and F2. So I'm not in any way sort of arguing that American junior single seats is better, but it's definitely more forgiving in terms of if you needed to do a second season in a series, I'm much more willing to just judge you as a driver as opposed to how many how many years and you've you've done in a championship. Like the the team will the team will almost basically rule that out as a a thing. Like whether they're going to like put you in IndyCar or whatever, they they'll put you in the car and they'll analyze how well you do over a test and they'll you know analyze your results over a season. But I feel like there's just this there is a cutthroat nature in Formula 2 and I understand why because it costs a lot of money to be there. There's a lot of really strong drivers um, and obviously it's it's a difficult championship to win. Um, if you're sticking around for three, four, five years, then I, I can understand why people start to to rule you out. But it does feel, probably less so recently, but it does feel like in, at least in the in, in like kind of recent history that it's been, that you need to kind of go in and win in your first season and if, if you don't, there's immediately like a red mark next to your name that you have to work for the next few years to try and kind of work off and uh, I, I just wonder if there's I don't think that's going to change or there's anything that one person can do to change that but it it just struck me then while you were talking about Porcher obviously doing his three seasons that if you again it's this thing about looking more into the context of the driver and just looking at more than just the results you see that he's actually done quite a few years fewer than a lot of people who've he's maybe even done fewer years in single seaters and some drivers who've won F2 in their first season because they've gone through so many years of other championships so uh, I guess it's just again it's just that thing of looking more into a driver uh, about what they're doing currently and trying to have a bit more of a like a, a better understanding of what the historical aspect means and what, how much it applies to the driver that you're actually talking about and just thought it's was, it was quite interesting while you were talking that that's something that's definitely struck me in America is that they're much more forgiving over a driver taking a second season or a, or or even a third if necessary. I mean that's quite rare, but it's usually two in, in IndyCar. But yeah, it's the I just found that really interesting. I do think in that sometimes it's a slight misunderstanding of the difference between say a driver who hangs around for four years and then wins in a really weak year, absolutely, ra- and rather than and I think that gets applied to everyone. Whereas actually you've also got to bear in mind. Yeah, not only the whole trajectory of the driver, but also the age and the developments. And for me, it's all about seeing that evolution. So yeah, I'd agree with you on that point. I quite like the aspect of of a second year driver in a championship sometimes as well, because uh, I guess if you just had a series of rookies every time in F2, would you really know how good the champion was at that point? Like, I quite like the inherent level of like the standard of a series being kept high so that we know when a rookie does come in and win it, um, that, that you've got like a good base to judge them against as well as judging what they've achieved in, in a season. I, I think that's worth keeping in mind as well. It, important to say of Prescher, obviously, is that you know, compared to my pick, Martins, he has been in single-seaters for a fewer amount of seasons and is younger. I mean, it feels like he's the F2 veteran and Martins is the new F2 thing. But uh, <laughs> on the whole global picture of their junior single-seater careers, that's, you know, there's a different picture there. I think just feels like there's been a bit of a, a hype backlash I guess if that if that makes any sense for Porsche, uh, I think his F3 season in particular, then his first F2 season, have done a lot to sort of show him is this next big thing. And then in these past two F2 campaigns, even though the point scoring has been respectable, he hasn't kicked on in the way that a lot of us will have wanted and expected him to. Which is not to say that he's been bad; just he has not been as good as you would have expected from the trajectory 
the you know the trend line is not being observed necessarily which you know it's not it's not good obviously first and i think that's that's what's really really hurting his chances of being on the on the 2024 grid but at the same time you know there's only it's only so fair to judge a driver on the expectations that they themselves created by being so good in the previous years, right? <laughs> it's it, it, it's only so fair. And I think, you know, I don't think Porsche had a particularly good season last year. And it, even this season doesn't feel particularly good. Like, I think about it. I don't get, you know, like, I don't get the feeling that I should be talking it up, right? I, I feel like there's always this slight tinge of disappointment. But I look at the standings and it's fine. It's basically quite good. I really this season he should win more races than he has I think to make an F1 case stick and I I will not fault Alfa Romeo slash Zauber whatever their name will be going forward I would not fault them if they kept Zhu Guanyu for for another season just just because he's been quite decent and continuity is good but it's, it's, it's it feels like I've I've seen people be really maybe needlessly dismissive of Porsche just because he's not lived up to what he showed in the past. And he, you know, he still might that trend line might still fix. He might still, you know, shoot the moon. He might still jump ahead and be, you know, make it to F1 be an excellent F1 driver. Entirely possible. He is 19. So, yeah. It's a good pick. I, I like I like that pick for Josh. It's the first Josh pick I've ever liked in anything. <laughs> uh, the, the thing is, if you rate uh, Joe as a, a competent Grand Prix driver, which I think most people do, and the fact that he's had a, a fairly solid couple of years, this is me and Val were talking before the season, or actually I think before Joe's actual debut, mm-hmm. and you compare J- Joe and Porsche's junior record, and there's only one winner there. You know, yeah. Porsche's record is just unarguably better uh, and Val's itching to talk, so I'm gonna <laughs> throw to Val. Well, well, the the way I put it, which it was really harsh, but I still sort of the the worst pre F one, and we can't call it pre F one for Porsche because we do not know if he'll make it. But the the worst pre F one Porsche season is better than the best pre F one Joe season, I think, or at least it's kind of close. I mean, maybe Joe in Italian F4, maybe maybe Joe in that final F2 season, maybe. But no, I'd, I'd, I'd actually go as far as to probably say that. So it's just, it, it is also a question of standards. So that's not to, that's not to denigrate Joe, who has been just a, a, a pretty good Formula One driver and deserves a, a lot of credit for how he's developed over the years. But it's just, again, I, I do think it it comes into play that we we get disappointed and tear share too easily. I guess that's true. I mean, also, you look at Hungary in, in F1 and, and Joe obviously kind of ultimately cracked under that pressure um, when he'd done the brilliant qualifying and, and stuff went wrong with the start. He obviously then made the mistake in, into turn one. And I couldn't help but feel, you know, I wonder what Porsche would have done in that scenario. Perhaps either the same thing or he'd have done, you know, he would have converted that into, into a great result and would have had more peaks. It's kind of when you look at Joe's career, I can think of Spain where he did a really good um, race there, but there aren't too many kind of glaringly obvious peaks. I think if you put Porsche in that car, you would have a, an awful lot more. Perhaps you'd have more lows and more obvious crashes, which you haven't had with Joe. But I think, um, you know, you, you'd have had those higher peaks. So I think if I was Alpha, I'd be serious considering it. And I think they, they will be because they've supported Porsche for so long and they've made this Formula 2 season possible 
you know, without their backing, he wouldn't be in Formula 2, from what I understand, this year. So clearly they think there's value in it. Look at somebody like Schwartzman, you know, for, for Ferrari, two years was enough. And that's it. That's your lot. You know, you're off. Whereas for, for Sauber, Borchere, with fairly similar results, was given a third year because clearly they, clearly they want him race ready. They want to to give him that final chance. And yeah, like Val said, it, it's down to him to, to use that. And it's down to him, I think, to show a bit more of those peaks and to do that by winning races. I think just playing a championship game until the end of the year, is that really going to convince them? You know, maybe that will be enough. It, it's more than what Joe was able to do it in F2. But you know, I think to, to make his case even stronger, I think some feature race wins would, would, would go a long way because I think what he's only had, he won Bahrain, didn't he? And, and since then hasn't won. So yeah, that would be the, the biggest way to kind of improve his case. Just to add a detail on the hungry start, the actual start itself wasn't his fault. There was a, a brake setting conflict and it went into a safe start mode. However, what does count against him, to my mind, is that he was on the radio complaining while heading down to the first corner, distracted himself, locked up, caused problems. So he didn't recover from it well. So I do agree there's a, a bit of a negative for him there as well. I think the the thing I wanted to ask Josh that I'd be looking at is, do you feel like there's enough of improvement on last year based on what we've seen? I mean, I guess I look at the fact that he's finished second in six of the 20 races this season. Um, it feels like maybe he's turning some of those kind of like fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth places more into into podiums um not not that he hasn't obviously had some uh like lower down results but just that it feels like most of the time if he's finishing a race um and he's qualified in a relatively decent position then he's going to be on the podium or he's going to be you know there in in the fight and I, I guess I don't feel like I had necessarily that same thought last season uh, maybe that's unfair but it, it feels like he's consistently performing at a higher level this season even if the even if the results aren't massively different, but he's already overtaken his points tally from last year. So I guess what what do you make of the, the, the level of improvement we've seen and is that enough that it would convince Alpha, do you think, at this point? Yeah, I think he's managed to raise that kind of consistent bar, as not he, from last year. And like I say, it's only a small step forward, but it's a step forward nonetheless. And sometimes we see people going from their second to third year and kind of not making that step. So yeah, I, I, think, I think so. I think it, it can be enough to at least make it a choice between Jeremy Porsche, yeah, I, I think he's done enough this year. Uh, and like I say, obviously, he's still got a bit of time. But even just judging what he's done so far, I think there's a very much, you know, he can make it a conversation. I, I'd certainly advocate it uh, <laughs> for next year. But like I think both of you have said, it's not one of those years where you're like, absolutely, Porsche needs to be an F1 car. They need to change all of their plans and, and get him in there right now. It hasn't been that convincing. But for me, just convincing enough, I think. I think the elephant in the room as well is that Joe brings a lot of backing, obviously. It's one of the reasons why he was able to make the step up in the first place and one of the reasons why he's, you know, convincing in that seat as well. It's not just the level of performance he brings, it's the the opportunities for the team that he brings as well. Yeah, exactly. Alfa Romeo has been, you know, quite conservative as well with with kind of driver changes before. I think everybody saw what Antonio Giovinazzi was able to do in the second tier and kind of some people were expecting the him to be promoted early and, and certain other drivers as well so I think sometimes they, they value a bit of consistency from, from year to year as well and just to sum up Josh the X Factor for Pacher what does he bring what's the magic what magic element of his makeup that could make him an F1 star I think his his race management I think the way he's he's controlled races this year the way he's like uh, Jack said has kind of raised that level from fifths and sixes to, to just constant podiums which has, has built this this championship charge so I think you, you drop him in and had you dropped him in you know after his rookie year I think he, he wouldn't have been ready but you drop him in now and I think he's ready to, to put together some 
some really strong weekends. He's, he's now got that consistency and a bit more of experience where he's going to, you know, not be... I think he's not going to have the same problems that Logan Sargent has had this year where he's shown loads of flashes of speed but hasn't really been able to put it together. I'd have a bit more faith that Porsche would, would be able to put stuff to, uh, put weekends together and, and build up a bit of a run. Yeah, and we should say for Alfa Romeo, Joe is indeed out of contract. Valtteri Bottas has an option that he has control of for next year. So Valtteri Bottas, barring something bizarre happening and Ferrari offering him a drive next year, which isn't going to happen, he will definitely be at Alfa Romeo next year. Well, we've had our say on who should have an F1 drive, but what does the race's audience think? We've asked our followers on Twitter, or X as we refuse to call it, who they believe deserves a shot in Formula 1. That's produced a long list of names we can sift our way through, quickfire style. We're only mentioning the ones that are at least slightly realistic in terms of age, even if some of them are a bit of a big stretch. And this will be fairly quickfire for the most part, but there might be a couple that are worth dwelling on slightly. So first up, Josh, Frederick Vesti, second in F2 at the moment. Yeah, great pick. Obviously, he was leading the championship um, before Spa, so he, he's a great pick. I mean, Spa, unfortunately, was very uh, anti what his whole year has been, which has been much better consistency. He was building a really good championship and then crashed on the on the way to the grid. So that was very much not an example of the improvement he's made this year, which has been very real, very genuine. Um, he's obviously Mercedes-backed. He's impressed them. He's doing Mexico FP1. Um I could see him at least being in the conversation for Williams, especially if he can push on and, and get that championship lead, championship lead back. He's been a rival of Piastri and Sargent before in F3. Uh, has got, I thought, compared well to them. He just didn't have the same consistency that those two had, so wasn't in the title fight, um, but has made a really good step in his second year in F2. So yeah, I, I, I could see him very much being in the conversation, especially if he can get his uh, title challenge back on track. Next up for you, Val, Felipe Djugovic, who's, of course, Aston Martin reserve driver and reigning F2 champion. So yeah, I suspect the ship has I, I suspect the ship has unfortunately sailed for for Drugo, which he didn't he didn't deserve that on on the evidence of that F2 title winning season. He's had a slightly unorthodox uh junior single seater career, but with some really, really good peaks. And that third year F2 title was one of those peaks. It was a honestly it was a much better campaign than the the words third year F2 title suggest. But I think he's sort of his time as flavor of the month was almost non-existent. And it would, for me, it would take something unusual to really properly get him back firmly into conversation. I think we're expecting him to join Andretti in Formula E, which is the championship-winning Formula E team. So you know, it's 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 a good bounce back, and not everybody can be an F1. And you know, I'm happy for him on on, on that account. And the first of a number of IndyCar drivers for you, Jack Joseph Newgarden, two-time IndyCar champion and in recent years perennial runner-up. Yeah, I don't think he's. I personally don't think he's too old, but I think he's past that kind of level now where F1 probably won't take him seriously or, or consider, consider him as an option, but he's every bit as good as Alex Plote as an option, in my opinion, and definitely better than Colton Herter as, a, as an American F1 driver option, just based on, you know, what he's been able to, to achieve in IndyCar. You look at the, you know, you mentioned second in the last three seasons. He was first before that, fifth before that, first before that. It's just the level of consistency he brings is staggering, to be honest. And I think a lot of people will point to the fact that he, he drives the team Penske, but he is so consistently their best driver and the person leading their team forward. He's so knowledgeable. He remembers setups from like four years ago and keeps that all of that on his shoulders. He he leads that team. It's not just a, he's not just a driver. He's he is a leader and he, he brings all of the attributes I think that Alex Blur brings to the table, except he's just a little bit older now and his uh, I think his his time's probably passed, but definitely a good enough driver and should have been considered a, a lot more seriously in my opinion. 
I'll take the next one, Sam Bird, currently eighth in Formula E. Maybe if it was a decade ago. Obviously, he was Merck affiliated, wasn't he? Had his 2013 title runner in F2, well, GP2 as I should call it, but yeah, 36 years old now, so that, that, that ship has sailed. Josh, next one for you is Liam Lawson, currently second in Super Formula and, of course, Red Bull affiliated. Yeah, he's a great pick. Obviously, could have got the Alpha Tauri seat instead of Daniel Ricciardo in slightly different circumstances. Uh, is very much in the conversation for next year. But unfortunately, I think his future is sort of out of his hands. I mean, he's doing absolutely everything he can. He's doing a great job in Super Formula. I think showing the kind of potential that people probably wish he showed a bit more in Formula 2, but he was still very solid in, in that championship in his two years there. Um, so yeah, I think he needs circumstances to go his way, but of the contenders on this list, I think he's still probably one of the most likely, really, to be uh, in F1 sometime soon. Val, Robert Schwartzman, who now seems to be going through the sports car transition. Yeah, uh, another one where I'd say the, the ship has sailed, and also another one where I'd say it's not entirely fair, because I think Robert Schwartzman is one driver who showed a lot of very serious and obvious improvement over his time in junior single seaters and was, you know, was a very good Formula Three champion, was very good in Formula Two, seemed to be pretty F1 ready to me, but was unfortunate to have Oscar Piastri in his career year as his teammate as a rookie. Because that was a, a decent season for Schwartzman. It was just an amazing season for Piastri, and that seemed to rob him of momentum completely. He's still in and around the yeah, for Ferrari Formula One setup, I imagine they they value him quite highly. It sounds like we're going to see him in in an F one practice outing again this year. Um, it's I I suspect his ship has sailed, but he'd be one where if somehow circumstances aligned to like at least give him a season, I think that'd be quite nice. I think his his father passing away in the twenty twenty F two season really hit him very very hard, and I think. Uh, Based on what I saw of him covering him in F3 and F2, he was definitely a driver good enough for, for Formula 1. And he's been linked strongly to a Ganassi IndyCar seat. I don't think that's going to happen at the moment. But if it does happen, yeah, I'd absolutely love to see him in IndyCar because I, I 100% think he will win a championship in IndyCar if he gets over. Big claim there. So could still have a big future in single-seaters. Next up for you, Jack, is Callum Eilert, currently in IndyCar. There's a good stat about Callum Eilert, wasn't it? About where he's the best, basically the best-ranked driver outside the big teams. Yeah. <laughs> He's, um, yeah, I, I feel bad for him. I think uh, there was too many probably high-profile errors in his final F2 season where he finished runner-up to Mick Schumacher and probably needed to win that season in order to get his Formula 1 chance. Uh, his, his opportunity is probably gone now, but um, I'd just say that he's proven that he is uh, a fantastic driver in IndyCar. It's really hard to see from the results because he's driving for a, a Hunkos team in its second season and not only in its second season, but has gone into its second season, expanded into a second car. So they're they're totally like... They need more staff. They need, uh, you know, better people uh, working on their cars uh, behind the scenes uh, as hard as they are trying and as many people as they have brought in to try and improve things. Um, and also, Callum was a one-car team last year. So in his rookie season, he had no no one to kind of go off. And this season, he's got another rookie as a teammate. So um, what he's, the, the level of performance he's able, been able to bring to that team, despite all of those things, uh, has been, been pretty good. And I'm very surprised that he's not being looked at more seriously by more of the bigger IndyCar teams for, for next season. Whether it will move or not, it'll be interesting to see, but it's not going to be to Formula 1, unfortunately. Yeah, next up for me, Antonio Felix da Costa, ninth in Formula E this year. Well, he was close to F1 10, 11 years ago, missed out to Daniel Kvyat. 2012 was the really strong season when he had that mega park campaign in Formula 1 3.5. Didn't quite come off in 2013, but yeah, that's another one whose uh, ship has long sailed, given he's 31 now. Next up for you, Josh, Ollie Behrman, currently sixth in Formula 2. 
yeah, this would be my pick if you just said we could pick sort of anybody for the future rather than sort of 2024. I think Porsche was the more immediate pick, but long term, I'd have probably p- picked Behrman just because I think of what he showed so far. I mean, he was absolutely exceptional in Baku, won both races there um, in what was only what a second or third F2 weekend. So. Yeah, he was incredibly impressive, really, really strong rookie year. Unfortunately, the consistency just hasn't been there. Nowhere near ready, I don't think, for F1 next year. Too many lows, but I think a second season in F2, if he's able to make the step that Porsche wasn't, then I think he'll easily be giving Ferrari a big headache of, of where to place him, especially if, you know, their usual kind of options like Alfa Romeo is kind of morphing into Audi eventually. I'll be really interested to see what Ferrari do there. I think he's going to give them a big headache, but only if he pushes on, unlike Porsche did in his uh, second F2 season. And Val, next up, we have another Alpine junior for you. Jack Doohan, currently fourth in F2. Yeah, he's fourth, but it's a it's a deceptive fourth because he's had some sort of uh, issue with the car that hasn't been officially disclosed but has clearly massively colored his season he was very off in the first part and then he's been on on a fantastic run of form recently to the point where you know a couple of more missteps by Porsche and or Vesti they they bring him right in there and on on his current form he you'd expect him to capitalize he's been he's been better uh the son of uh Mick and the MotoGP legend uh yeah Jack's been better Basically, every level, the more powerful the car gets, the, the better he seems to get. Um, I mean, I, I went to bat for Martins, but I, I think I could have just as easily tried to make a case for for Dewan as the other Alpine junior of, of big interest. And it, uh, I think from what we know, Alpine is, rates him quite highly. Um, he's, he's a distinct, good pick, distinct possibility. I mean, still, we need to see how this season ends and then what, what the plan is, but entirely possible, yeah. Next up for you, Jack, another IndyCar driver, Colton Herter. In another life, he could have been sacked by AlphaTauri already by now. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I, I guess there was so much hype uh, around him coming into IndyCar at such a young age and being able to win and score, you know, poles straight away, um, the, the level of performance that he, he brought immediately. But ever since then, we've just not seen that level of consistency. And I think this is partly a team problem. We've seen this around Andretti over the past few years that that the team is just incapable of being consistent over the course of a season. But Colton's definitely struggled after his uh, second season to to deliver consistency over the course of a season, just finding that balance between going for wins and and trying to score consistent top fives and and put himself in, in IndyCar contention. I guess the, the reason he's not in Formula 1 is because he doesn't have a super licence points. And the reason he doesn't have the super licence points is because he's not finished high enough in the championship. So it's a bit of a chicken and the egg situation. But um, for me, he's not he's not displayed the level of consistency that's needed to to make the switch to Formula 1. I think he's better off in, in, in IndyCar. And also, uh, I guess the, the, the level of performance that he's brought over, over a single lap or qualifying or, or whatever has been really impressive but even this season he's basically been outshone by Kyle Kirkwood who's come into the team for, for this season um, and, and has delivered two victories to Colton has scored two poles but hasn't scored a win yet um, Kirkwood's been inconsistent as well funnily enough but um, has managed to notch those wins and is ahead of him in the championship so I find it really difficult to advocate for someone going, going to F1 when they're not doing as well as one of their teammates at the moment Next up, a suggestion I'll take, Kalarovan Pera, who's only 22, on his way to a second WRC title. We'd be wonderful if he was to convert from rallying. Obviously, got a lot of ability, but it's not going to happen in a million years, let's face it. Great one to think about, but that sort of thing pretty much never happened and certainly doesn't happen these days, interesting as it would be. Josh, next up for you, Andrea Kimi Antonelli, Mercedes-affiliated leading Formula Regional Europe as well. 
Yeah, he's a big talent. Huge hype around him, especially last year. I mean, what a ridiculous amount of Formula 4 races. And this year, having a, a good season, I think people expected him to dominate. But he has found his way now to the lead. So I think, yeah, if he can convert that into to this title, there'll be a, a lot of eyes on what he can do in, in Formula 3 next year. Um, people are a bit surprised he didn't jump straight up. But I think, you know, him and Mercedes are acknowledging that you don't need to rush straight to, to Formula 2. You know, you can take your time a bit. You can get the learning up and, and then maybe when you arrive in Formula 2, you're a bit more ready to have the kind of rookie year that, you know, Piastri, Russell and, and so on have had. So, yeah, he's a really exciting one. I think many people were kind of picking him as probably one of the best prospects of outside of F1. So, yeah, keeping a, a keen eye on him um, and the guy he's fighting as well, um, the Norwegian Martinez uh, Stenshorn. Apologies if I've pronounced that wrong, but he's a rookie and he's having a, a really strong year as well. And I fully suspect that he'll be snapped up by an F1 program before too long as well. So, yeah, keep an eye on both of them. I think they've got a very, very bright future ahead. Next up for you, Val, Italian F4 leader Arvid Lindblad, who I think is still a Red Bull junior, isn't he? Yeah, it still isn't a very kind word there. I mean, he's doing... Per- that, that's just with all Red Bull juniors. I just assume there's a chance they've been dropped in the last few days. And I haven't noticed. <laughs> no, he's, he's giving Red Bull basically no reason to, to even consider that. Now, he is Red Bull's not... I'm not sure if he's it's, it's sole representative at that level or... But, but it, it feels like he's Red Bull's focal point right now at that level, which is sort of a level like he was already a Red Bull Junior in karting, which normally doesn't doesn't seem to happen. Uh he's an exciting talent. He's having a good, you know, first crack at Formula Four. And there's only so much you can tell from Formula Four, especially when somebody drives for Prima in Italian F4. Uh but I mean he's obviously pretty good and very interesting. But it would, we'll have to see how his progression within those Red Bull ranks works out. But he's, you know, he's exactly the sort of talent you want Red Bull to, to take a punt on and to sign and to, to, to try to develop. Jack, next up for you, yet another IndyCar driver, Pato O'Ward. Yeah, I don't know why you're giving me all the IndyCar drivers. What's that about? Um, yeah, Pato, very, very high ceiling, I think. Um, when you watch him drive in IndyCar, he, he's absolutely spectacular to watch when it comes to his onboards and stuff like that and the the level of performance he's able to been able to bring um he's basically destroyed every teammate he's had in in indycar at mclaren and there's probably some argument that the car is a little bit kind of geared towards him at this point having been there for for a little while now and having clearly been the the team team leader there but um still what he's able to do sometimes just astonishes me to be honest on a a, over one lap or, or one race weekend um the, the consistency is a tricky one because it's a similar situation to Colton where McLaren hasn't been the most consistent team in IndyCar. It's also been a team that has basically come out of Schmidt-Peterson um, from a few years ago and they're still in the same like two-car factory running three cars out of that team. So basically everything about McLaren is really well-funded. Um, they've got the right people in place. They're, they're really well-backed, but they're kind of like operating out of a rabbit hutch at this moment and really need that new factory and be, be, you know need to expand and... Um, you know, really find their feet in, in IndyCar properly. And once they do that, I think they'll be, uh, I think they'll be tough to beat. But I, I guess the the downside to Pato is that he's had quite a few F1 tests now. It doesn't really seem to have convinced McLaren that he's somebody they absolutely desperately need to get over there rapidly or, or anything like that. Um, I don't think they've particularly ruled him out, but you just don't necessarily uh, feel like he's like, I feel like Pelot's come in and immediately jumped the queue basically and been the more likely driver from, from IndyCar to look like to, to go over from the McLaren side. So um, it'll be interesting to see 
how much time Pato gets uh, in terms of like FP1s or, or Formula 1 outings in the second part of the season after the after the IndyCar season's finished. And a great left field suggestion now I'll take Kevin Estre He's a 34-year-old Porsche perennial, very accomplished sports car driver. He very briefly dabbled in sports cars, but he went down the Porsche route very, very early on, had a very fine career, but no, I don't see him being a, a Formula One option, not even a, an Andre Lotterer-style one-off appearance. Next up for you, Josh, Tomoki Najiri, who's third in Super Formula and won the title last year, I think. Yeah, in his, into his early 30s now, so I think that ship has sailed, but he's doing a great job in Japan. I'd love to see him in a one-off FP1 at Suzuka or something. That that would be great, but yeah, no chance. Uh, worth mentioning that Nigeria had a collapsed lung earlier this year and missed a race, so I think he'd definitely be ahead of Lawson if he'd have had that run where he hadn't been you know, suffering with, with that. And um, yeah, definitely a, a strong driver and won the last two Super Formula Championships. So um, he, he's one I would advocate for getting an FP1 as well, definitely. He's compared very well as well to so many European drivers, hasn't he, over the last few yeah, years? So absolutely. Yeah, fully agree. In days of old, he'd have got a Friday outing for Jordan at Suzuka, wouldn't he? <laughs> Next up for you, Val, we have Ugo Ugachukwu, who's second in Italian F4 right now. Yeah, Ugo's... Uh, I mean, he's, he's, an, he's a McLaren junior. He's a very interesting prospect, uh, American, uh, second Formula, Formula 4 season. He's doing all right. He's being overshadowed a bit by Arvid Lindblad, who's their Prima teammates, but also... For Ferrugo, he's really tall, so that surely doesn't help with Formula Four right now. He's just really, really tall, and he's 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 still growing. So it might be a case where that's going to be a, a problem for his Formula One aspirations. I hope not. If it's not, then I think he's on a he's on a decent trajectory. And of course, a McLaren affiliated driver. Next up for you, Jack, you'll be shocked to know it's another IndyCar driver this time, Scott McLaughlin. Hi. I like this one. This is this is a really interesting one. Um, I think, kind of logic-wise, he's not someone you would even think about going to Formula One at any point. But he's definitely someone I think deserves an F1 test, just based on what he's been able to achieve in in IndyCar. You look at him coming over in in late 2020, early 2021 from supercars, having done one season of uh, Australian Formula Ford uh, about six years previously. That was his single seater experience and. He's come into IndyCar and immediately been uh, a contender. In his second season, he won three races. Only one person won more races that year, and that was Joseph Newgarden, who won five. So um, the the level of performance he's brought to Team Fancy has been really impressive, and he strikes me as the kind of adaptable person. Uh, I mean, that's probably the most obvious thing in the world to say based on the fact that he's come from no single-seater experience to be an IndyCar race winner consistently. But um, his adaptability certainly strikes me as something that, uh, you know, he wouldn't be too out of place in a in a Formula 1 car. You definitely need to get him in a test and find out you know, whether he can translate his abilities into a Formula 1 car based on how little kind of open wheel experience he has. But it would be a really fascinating test to, to kind of go as a fly on the wall and see how he got on. And next up a driver, I'll take a related driver, I'd argue, Shane Van Gisbergen, of course, made his name in supercars in Australia. He's originally from New Zealand. Obviously, he's shown really well in all the categories he's taken on. He's uh, he strayed well beyond uh, the Antipodean region. Obviously, recently won on his NASCAR debut in Chicago, and he's got NASCAR aspirations now. It would be great fun, but I think it would probably need to be 30 or 40 years ago for him to get plucked in, in uh, out of things like that and thrown into F1. That just doesn't happen nowadays, unfortunately. But yeah, a very, very fine driver. Definitely too late for him, though. Josh, another driver for you. Max Gunter, seventh in Formula E this year. Yeah, he's had a really good year in, in Formula E. I've been really impressed with him. What he's done at Maserati is great. And he's compared extremely well to Edo Mortara, but not an F1 prospect. Never really has been. He was in the uh, Formula 3 year with Stroll. 
who's one of his main ri- rivals, but <laughs> that's perhaps a bit of a, a loose term in, in the context of that year. But yeah, always very competent. I thought did a great job in a, a difficult year in, in F2 in, in 2018. But yeah, ultimately never has been or never will be a, an F1 prospect. Val, next up for you, Jake Dennis, Formula E world champion and of course a long-time Red Bull simulator driver. I mean, they really should give him an FP1 somewhere. I think that that much is clear, which I think applies actually to so many of the drivers uh, proposed. You know, McLaughlin and Gisberg, and that'd be amazing to just have him run out an FP1. Uh, maybe the data would be of limited value, but you know, it'd be it'd be interesting. It'd be fun to watch. <laughs> uh, obviously, Jake Dennis's ship has sailed, and I, I think he knows he knows as much too. Um, a few years ago when he was coming up through junior single-seaters, it would have been interesting if some Formula 1 team took a punt on him and tried to sort of subsidize him a bit and try to get him into maybe one of the better GP2 seats. It it could have been F2, GP2, doesn't matter. It could have been really, really interesting. But, you know, that ship has sailed. He's proven himself to be a very, very, very good driver in in Formula E. And next up for you, Jack, yet another IndyCar driver, Stingray Rob, who's in his rookie season. I'm going to give this the level of consideration that it deserves. He's 25th in the stand-ins. No. Excellent. Next up is another driver who will require probably similar level of consideration, but for different reasons. Felipe Albuquerque. Obviously, he's leading IMSA. 38-year-old, clearly too old, had a fine sports car career. But to be fair, even his junior single-seater career was decent, but it wasn't absolutely blinding, which is, I think, why he went down this path. So I think he's had the sort of career he should have. And obviously, yeah, and obviously, yeah, he's not going to be driving an F1 at this age. Next up, Josh, we're very much into the left-field choices now. Jacob Bergmeister, who's sixth in year formula open yeah i love the left field choices i think it, it's great that people have a, a love for, for junior single seaters euro formula open has taken a, a huge downturn unfortunately in recent years it's, it's very much on its last legs so unfortunately anybody in that championship even if he was first i think you'd have to have a huge question mark over so uh yeah unfortunately more, more evidence needed unfortunately right now nobody in that field is gonna be uh identified as f1 prospect I've also never seen him up close, but obviously his father's Jörg Bergmeister, who definitely was on the wrong side of the height scale to be a single-seater driver, so maybe he'll go down the sports car route as well. <laughs> Val, Raffaele Marciello, someone who is very much into the uh, into the world of uh, sports cars after his single-seater career now. Yeah, that ship has sailed, obviously. I've, I mean, that much is good. Even though he's only 28, which sort of surprised me looking it up because for some reason I thought definitely 30, but it's just, I guess the last few years have been very long. He was, he would have deserved a Formula One season, I think. he. I think he never got that golden ticket GP2 chance and I think he was good enough to explore a little bit more. But when he left Ferrari, he sort of, he told the media that it was because Mauricio Ravabene didn't take a liking to him. But also you can sort of see how he got overtaken in the list within Ferrari by by other prospects and how it, it probably wasn't really going to happen. Uh, he's he's had himself a really good career as Mercedes GT driver. I imagine the trophy cabinet is absolutely overflowing with various, you know, blank pan, spa 24 hours, etc. kind of stuff. Uh, would have been interesting in an alternate reality, but but no. But hey, I'd, I'd bring him in for an FP1 or something. Again, be fun. Basically, in your world, anyone's driving an FP1. You're you're doing it almost as one of those F1. I mean, that's that's my that's my plan to get myself into FP1. That's <laughs> excellent. And Jack, for your final one, we are going to give you a non IndyCar driver, but one you will know from your days in the uh, the F1 support paddock, Luca Giotto. 
Yeah, I think, um, was it Joshua Valm who mentioned uh, the 2015 GP3 season earlier on, talking about Ocon? Um, Josh. Yeah, yeah. So um, Luca Giotto was on the wrong side of that, but um, I think he, was it five wins he had that year? Uh, yes, five wins he had that year. So uh, he was super impressive that year. And he's one of those people who, um, if we were going back and uh, talking about some of those championships where you kind of swap the people around, uh, it would have been interesting to see what had happened if he'd have won that GP3 season. But unfortunately, he spent the next few years kind of bouncing around um teams that weren't ready to win championships or weren't quite uh, the the absolute top level of uh, of of F2 um and it was 2019 by the time he got into a probably a proper championship winning car with uh, you and I Virtuosi and at that point I think Formula 1 teams have already decided that he wasn't going to be a, a serious candidate and I think if he'd have won the championship that year things might have been a little bit different but he ended up finishing third so um it was um just timing really for him I think and I think if he'd have maybe scored that third in his first season or his second F2 season, he might have um, might have had a bit of a better chance. Or if he'd have won the championship, obviously that would have uh, at least got him on the on the radar for F1. But I'd never really feel like he was a serious contender in that silly season um, in 2019. And obviously after that, he's kind of fallen fallen off the radar a little bit and headed into, into GTs, um, which is sad. But I, I'm, I guess we'll never know if he was really good enough to... to to be in Formula One, but there was a lot of drivers around that time who were good enough and did make it, um, and he was one of the ones who didn't. So, unfortunately, we'll never know that one. Yeah, and he's got a fit in Formula E, hasn't he? He's a simulator driver for that, so may see yeah. him there down the line. And the final driver is Nick Cassidy. Now, obviously, he was second in Formula E. 28 years old now, so that ship has sailed, as a phrase we've used for a lot of these drivers. But, yeah, it would have been interesting. Certainly, someone who's got a bit about him. I remember him taking a brilliant third place in the Macau Grand Prix in a very trimmed-out three-bond car really impressive drive but he's had this gloriously eclectic career and i don't think you'd want to swap that for just dalliance in formula one he's won in japan obviously won super formula he won super gt he's been a front runner in formula he's won in so many categories he's putting together a gloriously eclectic career so yeah you wouldn't rule him out as a completely left field f1 choice but a bit late tested for ganassi uh in indycar earlier this season as well so the the career could get even more eclectic in the future if he does end up making the the switch out here yeah, he definitely, at the very least, needs a full race in for Dale Coyne Racing, if not a proper <laughs> IndyCar career, just to make sure he, he gets uh, gets into everything. But it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's so many names all over the place. That, and if the cards had fallen differently, particularly for some of these older drivers, they could easily have got into F1 and did a, and did a decent job. Again, I don't think there's anyone who you're looking at as a lost world champion, necessarily. But there's not many of those absolute brilliant drivers but the sort of second and third tier drivers who are still very good there's loads of possibilities so it'll be interesting to see how some of the younger drivers we talked about and the drivers that uh, Josh Jack and Val recommended get on well thanks very much to Val Jack and Josh for your insight head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen plenty to read there even in the midst of the F1 summer break and of course we've got MotoGP coverage that Val gets involved in Jack doing his excellent IndyCar coverage which is well worth reading check out our other podcasts including our MotoGP podcast IndyCar podcast bring back V10s the race F1 tech show with Gary Anderson also check out our YouTube channel well the return of the Grand Prix season isn't too far away so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One The Athletic.